I mean, Arthur's sperm knew it was so gay that it literally just <laughs> died on the way to the womb. No, it just crawled back into the <laughs> penis. Hey guys, welcome back to Merlison, a bi-weekly podcast about BBC's Merlin where we talk about the show, the ships, the fandom and the characters. I'm Miss Snowfox. And I'm Amortastic. And today we're back with some character analysis for you, uh, a group character analysis like the last one we did. Last time we did minor season one characters, and this time we are doing female villains of season one. We still can't seem to get away from season one. <laughs> we're still <laughs> trudging back, even though we're well into our season two episode reviews by now. But that's okay. We still have ground to cover. So all you season one fans will still be very taken care of. And we have a really, really exciting guest with us today who has been listening for a very long time. And I'll just let them introduce themselves. Say hi, Sarah. Hello, I'm Sarah. So we're hoping that they'll provide us with a lot of insight and meta and lots of lovely thoughts on the female villains of season one. But until then, you guys know how it goes by now. So I'll just let Momo do her thing. Yeah, let's hear some news. After coming on Big Bang's mandatory writer's check-in is here. If you're writing for this challenge, you need to check in immediately or else your story won't be put up for summary claiming. Merlin Reverse Big Bang 2019 is officially over. The master list has been posted. Go and check LifeJournal to see the final results. Merlin Wished on Tumblr is running another Mirtha theme fest. This year, it's the Merlin Touch Fest. It starts on the 1st of July and ends on the 31st of August. It's a fest aimed to create more works specifically about resolving touch starvation. For more explanations and rules, check the Tumblr of Merlin Wished, that's spelled Merlin W-Y-L-L-T, or follow the link in the show notes. And that has been it for news. Let's go back to rocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have talkbacks and finally caught up-ish. <laughs> We're very happy ish. about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So the first comment we have is from Diane, Archaeologist D, and she had this to say about our episode reaction to the Curse of Cornelia Segan. Uther hunting witches. He had bounty hunters going around looking for magic folk, as explained with Freya in Lady of the Lake, so I was assuming he'd been doing it in the background for a while. I mean, I get that, but, I mean, it's eight episodes in between Curse of Cornelia Segan and the Lady of the Lake, and the only reason the bounty hunters are in Lady of the Lake is not really to fulfill his promise of looking for sorcerers and upping his efforts. They're in Lady of the Lake, because Freya needs to be Merlin's love interest. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Kind of not really relevant. I mean, I get where you're coming from. Like, it's nice to headcanon it that way. But I think that considering the witch finder in episode seven is, again, only brought in because Merlin fucks up and someone sees him doing magic, that's not evidence of Uther 
going out of his way to look for like he even in the nightmare begins is like i've known all along that the druids were hiding in this forest and yet i've never done anything about it why don't we do something about it now <laughs> and i complained that he wasn't being efficient enough in his <laughs> like murderous <Yeah>. dream <laughs> so yeah i'm just kind of like I think it's a cute headcanon, but I just don't really think that it's necessarily supported by the show. But I don't know. What do you think, Momo? Yeah, no, that is literally everything I had in my notes as well. That <laughs> <laughs> seriously, to a point, that yeah, Merlin, Merlin fucks up in the Witchfinder, and then someone reports it to Uther, and Uther is like, "Oh wait, didn't I say something about actually hunting magic again? Maybe I should actually do that this time." <laughs> Like, this is literally what happens in this episode, is it not? And then then Freya comes in in the next episode, and we have these bounty hunters, and it's just like, like continuity-wise, this works, seven episodes 7 and 8, but, I mean, really, we should have had, like, they could have probably put the Freya episode a little earlier in the season to give that bit of continuity with, like, Uther saying, I'm redoubling my efforts to hunt magic but it's just eh. like yeah. like you said rocks literally the only reason the bounty hunters are there is so that we have a reason to have freya in the episode so she can become Merlin's love interest and then die tragically i was also <laughs> under the impression and i haven't uh, like i could be getting my wires crossed and i guess someone will correct me if i'm wrong but i i thought that the bounty hunter and the lady of the lake wasn't actually hired by Uther. I thought I like, I just kind of assumed he was just passing through and then she happened to escape. So he had yeah. to leave it to Uther's jurisdiction. I mean, I don't think Uther actually hires bounty hunters. I think he just puts out bounty for any sort of magical person or creature. Right. And then bounty hunter, like that is literally how bounty hunting works. No one hires a bounty hunter bounty hunters start looking for where they can get bounty and then i see i see and then they capture or kill people or things and bring them to the person who put out the bounty right okay yeah it does seem somewhat inconsistent with his uh, other times he's like such a fervent like we must root out all magic and then he seems to forget about it for a little while <laughs> yeah I mean, he's not the, you know, he's not super young anymore. Maybe he's just having a bit of memory problems. We we shouldn't, we, you know, we shouldn't be ageist about it. Uther is actually the victim of this whole story. <laughs> this is what I've been saying for years. I mean, what is this poor man in his late 40s, early 50s, supposed to do you know he can't get any hearing aids in the fantastical <laughs> middle ages that they live in so we also have a comment from july lily uh who commented on our cinematography and uh special and visual effects episode and they had this to say since it was a love to hate episode and i feel you were a lot on the love side this time i agree that the lighting is usually gorgeous in the show i just wanted to comment on a scene where the light is really bad it's in episode 413, when Merlin, Arthur, the knights, Tristan and Isolde are armed and ready to get Camelot back from Morgana's clutches. 
They're in the forest and the lighting feels like they're on a baseball field with intense industrial white light. Definitely not the kind of lighting you would have in a medieval nocturne setting. Thanks for talking about this subject. It's not something I hear about often. <laughs> I'm just laughing at all the day for night in this show. It just really <laughs> makes me laugh. I need to keep an eye out for this specific one, though, um, in future, because I don't think I've noticed it before. Uh, but, yeah, there's a lot of day for night, a lot of blue tint. I wonder if that if that particular scene is actually day for night, though. Like, hmm. if uh, with what July Lily says, it's like, you know, lighting feels like they're on a baseball field. So, who knows? So, if you guys would like to have us react to your comment on the podcast, then a lot of you already know this, but for those of you that don't, you need to leave us a comment on our website, and that is melison.paracaproductions.com. We kind of pick and choose uh, which comments we react to simply based on whether or not we've covered your comment in a previous episode at length. But if you desperately want us to react to it, then please just let us know in the comment and we absolutely will. We're kind of caught up now, so, you know, we can be a bit more forgiving with what we react to. <laughs> um, we don't react on air to any comments left on any of the following channels, but we will reply to you personally on these channels. So we're on Tumblr at Merlisten and you can re reblog the post or leave some comments in the tags or send us an ask and we'll respond to you in all those ways. We're on Twitter. We're also Merlisten, obviously. And if you at reply us or send us a DM or reply to one of our tweets, we'll also just reply to you on that website. You can email us. Merlisten.podcast at gmail.com is the email address and we'll respond to your email directly. Or you can listen to us on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Obviously, we're also more listen on there. And finally, if you actually want to get into in-depth discussions with us or even talk to us about being on the podcast uh, in depth, then we have a Discord and the link to that will be on our Tumblr. Or you can just ask me or Momo, like we'll be happy to give it to you. Um, But usually there's some kind of a discussion after we post episodes. So if you want to just kind of talk to us about what we've been discussing, then that's the place that you want to do it. And Momo uh, often organizes guests on there as well. So that's also a really good place to do it. So there, comment away. <laughs> cool. So now that we've got all that out of the way per se, we can have the segment that I really, really love whenever we have a new guest. And that's fandom history. <laughs> So, Sarah, this is the part where you get to talk all about yourself. And first of all, just tell us who you are and where people can find you and what, like, kind of what brought you to Merlin and what got you into the fandom. And I guess what you do in fandom, like whether you're a lurker or whether you actually kind of like create content, we want to know everything. So go ahead. Well, hello, I'm Sarah. I live in the United States. You can find me on Tumblr and Twitter. On Tumblr, I'm Transdimensional Void. On Twitter, I'm Smartinis. I'm multi-fandom, but I love Merlin a lot. And I have been in fandom for many, many years in various fandoms, and especially on t uh, Tumblr and Twitter. Those are like my two top places um, that I spend most of my time on the internet. And I saw tons of gifts and people talking about Merlin for several years before I actually watched it. And then at some point a few years ago, I decided, hey, it's on Netflix. Why not watch it? 
and then I became obsessed. Uh, but I do have um, a special story about how I watched Merlin. When I first watched it, I binged, you know, all of it until I got to season five, episode five. And it, this is the episode, The Desire. It's Ooh. the scene. It's the scene where Merlin is talking to Arthur over the campfire. Oh, no. Arthur earnestly asks him for his opinion about magic. And, you know, Merlin says the the fateful line, there's no place for magic in Camelot. And I have to confess that I rage quit the series at that point. <laughs> um, I just I just pressed pause and left and went straight to reading fan fiction. That is so relatable. <laughs> um yeah, I had to like soothe my aching heart with fan fiction for several months before I was willing to like come back and give the rest of season five a try. My god, for a second I thought that was the end of the story and now you haven't watched the end of season five. <laughs> I was like, no. Oh, oh no. Oh no. <laughs> you've got a terrible, terrible shock in store if you've not yet watched the end of season five. But you have seen the end of season five. Oh no, no, yes. I know, I know how it all ends sadly <laughs> yeah i was gonna say that would be a terrible plot twist i mean we, would, we wouldn't be able to talk about much <laughs> oh no 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 yeah i i mean i would say as far as the merlin fandom i'm mostly a lurker i have written one fan fiction for merlin it's very short uh but it's on my ao3 which is also transdimensional void uh, but for the most part, you know, I lurk, I read a ton of fan fiction. Like, I think of all the fandoms I've been in, Merlin probably has the best fan fiction. Um, and some of my favorites that I've ever read. So I read a ton and leave lots of comments and kudos and appreciate all of the wonderful fan works out there. Wonderful. Amazing. I am really curious now just to kind of like know what your favorite fics are in the fandom or if you have any. Oh, of course. Um, so I would say probably my favorite is Loaded March. Yeah, it's it's my favorite. It's just it's so like engrossing because the world building is like so deep and there's so much detail. Like yeah. you can just really get lost in it. Yeah, I can see that from like what I've listened to so far. Uh, I can totally I can totally see that. Mm -hmm. um, well, I would say my other favorite Merlin fic is another one that you guys haven't read, which is There Are No Gays in Football. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that one. I just knew it. Listen. I feel personally attacked. <laughs> okay, listen. Here's the thing. My, my background is in creative writing. Like, I have my master's in English focusing on creative writing. So I get really, like, invested in how well-written things are. And to me, this is, like, one of the, like, best written well like in terms of like the pacing it's just like perfect and like the plotting as well that like it's um it it's it, like it, it surprises you without doing that like stupid thing of like I'm just gonna write a plot twist to like shock you you know it's like it feels like consistent with the characters and the world building and everything So now that we've heard all about Sarah and we're very excited for her to contribute to our discussion about the female villains, let's talk about some female villains. 
And I know that we're going to kind of um, start off this conversation with uh, an, <laughs> a, a question that I'm sure is going to get us into a discussion like it yes. usually does. <laughs> Yes, and I want to point out that it's Sarah's fault we're going to have this discussion, okay. <laughs> because um, it's Sarah who suggested it. <laughs> well, the question in question, uh, to not keep you guys in suspense any longer, I know that you can't take it anymore, is um, does Morgana count as a villain of season one because of her role to kill Uther in To Kill the King? Um, I mean, I guess seeing a Sarah was the one that posed this question. Do you want to maybe take the lead on this? Because I'm assuming you maybe think she is. Am I right in assuming that? Um, I mean, I, I went back and forth about it when I was trying to make my list of, of who were the female villains of season one. But and I think you you guys brought this up in the, your episode review for that episode that depending on the point of view you take there, you know, you could see Uther as the villain or Morgana as the villain in that episode. And and I think it's worth at least like considering the fact that like the the episode was meant to give us the seeds of her villainy right in this conflict that she has with Uther um, that he has this very extreme point of view about magic that is affecting the people that she cares about and that kind of is what starts her down that path of becoming the ultimate villain of the series. Mm. Um, so. I, I yeah, and I mean, I think it's kind of it may even boil down to like just the question of what the word villain means, but she's certainly an antagonist, mm -hmm. especially for Merlin in that episode, you know that that's the first time where he's really confronted with um you know what his role is in in protecting or not magic users from Uther you know, versus protecting Uther from magic users who might attack him. Well, I guess a good, you've kind of brought up a good point there, and maybe it's worth discussing because this is our first villains episode, is actually uh, categorizing the difference between a villain and an antagonist. Because if I'm quite honest with you, I don't really understand the dictionary definition differences between the two words. I mean, if, I mean, I guess we can look them up. I I I actually I actually did just look it up on on dictionary.com and it says villain a cruelly malicious person who is involved in or devoted to wickedness or crime a scoundrel second definition a character in a play novel or the like who constitutes an important evil agency in the plot what uh, what do they say about antagonist? Antagonist, a person who is supposed to struggles against or competes with another opponent or adversary. The adversary of the hero or protagonist of a drama or other literary work. Hmm. That's interesting then, because by that, like by those literal definitions, Uther is technically the villain of the series Merlin whereas people like Sophia like Lady Helen they're antagonists which kind of is like the flip I, of what I've always no, said about no. them what makes you say that because I don't think Uther is a cruelly malicious person who is involved or devoted to wickedness or crime but what was that second definition that was specifically about stories 
uh, a character who constitutes an important evil agency in the plot. I mean, you know, the, the word evil is pretty subjective anyway, but I assume the reason why you might constitute Uther as an evil quote-unquote character is because his existence in the plot does threaten Merlin's life and he's our hero. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've personally, when I watched the series, that was my interpretation that Uther was the real villain of the series. I mean, and I don't mean that in the sense that, like, he is evil, but in the sense that every every really difficult choice that Merlin has to make stems from Uther's choices and Uther's actions. So he's the he's the origin of, of a lot of the roadblocks that Merlin encounters. It's really difficult because I'm trying not to get bogged down by my own kind of subjective like of the character, but he is an like his existence does compromise Merlin, but he's actually never in direct conflict with him. And I think that's what makes me not really see him as a villain because Merlin is inflicted by his rules and his regulations. But I mean, I can count on one hand the amount of times they even speak to one another or have any kind of interactions together. We've even tried to count how many times Uther says his name. <laughs> it's like very, very few. Whereas Morgana in season three definitely is a villain to Merlin and to the rest of the characters. I'm just like for the, like just as an academic exercise for the purpose of these discussions, I think it's useful to know what the actual definitions in in the idea of creative writing are between an antagonist and a villain, because you'll hear people say it all the time, well, this X character is not really a villain. They're more an antagonist, but it's like, well, what does that actually mean? <laughs> like, But I think the definition that we had where they're in direct competition with a character is important because, yeah, so for example, in that respect, Lady Helen would not be an antagonist because she's not in direct competition with Merlin. Well, also... Uh, I yeah I I'm going to say this later but we really need to differentiate between Lady Helen and Mary Collins because it's not actually Lady Helen who commits these crimes okay, it's Ma yeah. Mary Collins who looks like Lady Helen. Yeah, okay, just, fair enough. <laughs> um people whereas, just keep forgetting that. <laughs> whereas for example and I know this isn't male villains yet but I'm just uh, bringing it up to uh, give this definition some uh, meat it's a uh, valiant would be an antagonist not a villain because he's an antagonist to Arthur. He's in direct competition with Arthur. He um, kind of threatens Arthur's position as, you know, man and whatever else you want to like say about that. Um, whereas someone like Sophia in season one, um, I think could be probably considered an antagonist to Merlin, possibly a villain, I, would I don't say know she's if you would consider her behavior evil, but she is yes. an antagonist to both, you know, to Merlin and, uh, well, not to Arthur because he doesn't know that she's evil, but definitely to Merlin who is trying to stop her. Um, it's not just, just, yeah, but it's also a villain is also, I mean, it is, the second definition is a character who constitutes an important evil agency in the plot, but the first definition is a cruelly malicious person who is involved in or devoted to wickedness or crime. Like, that is the first definition of what a villain is. And in that respect, it's definitely, Sophia definitely would be a villain because she is cruelly malicious. 
towards Arthur and manipulating him and what she intends to do with him is murder him, which is definitely a crime. And she's very, very intent on doing that for her own personal gain. Well, I suppose in that case, the way I'd maybe frame it is if a villain is someone who constitutes evil doings, blah, 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 in the plot, then in that case, a villain could essentially, like we've said about Uther, never really make contact with our hero necessarily as long as they threaten things that happen in the plot. An antagonist can be a villain, but they have to have a much more one-to-one connection with one of our protagonists. It doesn't have to be the hero. Valiant, obviously, is an antagonist to Arthur, but he's not a villain. So an antagonist can be a villain, and a villain can be an antagonist, but they are technically separate things. One is affecting the plot as a whole, whereas the second one is more on a character-to-character basis. Would that maybe be accurate? Um, Well, I will say, like, from my own literary background, Mm -hmm. my understanding was always that antagonist is a much broader term. So, like, an antagonist doesn't even necessarily have to be personified. An antagonist could be, like, the weather. Um, You know, it's basically anything that's preventing the protagonist of the story from achieving their goals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Anything that's getting in their way. So an antagonist doesn't necessarily have to be evil or committing a crime or being bad to to be in the way. Or even to do it intentionally, because, like, the weather isn't intentionally in your way. The the weather just... Mm -hmm is Mm -hmm. yeah exactly whereas like a villain is very specifically someone who is partaking in evil as the definition says but they can marry up and they often do like that's kind of what i'm getting at right that a villain can also be an antagonist Mm -hmm. or they or they can be separate from the character's life altogether sort of thing yes yeah Coming back from this tangent, back to the discussion that we were supposed to have. Which was, is Morgana <laughs> a villain? <laughs> in season one, specifically in season one. I mean, and specifically in that episode. Like, I, I wouldn't consider her a villain or even an antagonist in the rest of the season. Uh, it's literally just this one episode. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think if you're talking about and again, this is, I think, where the definition was actually quite useful in this in this discussion, because if you're talking about villainous slash evil acts, I think many people would consider plotting to overthrow the king and murdering him an evil act. It could bring about the downfall of Camelot. It could displace, you know, a lot of uh, people. It could create, you know, discord in the <laughs> in the kingdom. So that would, I think, would be considered an evil act. Um, however, certainly not an antagonist because uh, she has nothing to do like this is purely Morgana and Uther's problem Uther um, Merlin only gets involved um, because of his moral compass that's that's it like he's actually not involved and she has no grievance with Merlin our hero whatsoever so she's probably more akin to a villain in that episode but I don't think she really goes far enough like, if she were to actually have killed Uther, I think perhaps we could have called her that. But I think um, thinking about doing evil things doesn't necessarily make you a villain. I think you have to actually complete the tasks in order to, uh, like, fully get get that title. But that's just my opinion. Sarah, bringing it back to you. Yeah, I, oh, I, I think that's 
I think that's about where I would land as well that like she does within the plot of that one episode she does serve as almost a villain you know she she ends up siding with Tauren and and the people who are trying to overthrow Uther um but you know ultimately we know at the end of the episode she chooses to save Uther's life um so I think she kind of dabbles in villainy for a brief period um (laughs) before ultimately making the right choice I think Morgana definitely dabbled but yeah didn't didn't go didn't uh complete the run as it were what do you think Momo I agree I don't really count Morgana as a villain in season one or season two just to take that ahead of time because she is like everything she does is more reactionary than actionary in my opinion and it takes until like season three when she decides to personally take action against the people that she thinks have wronged her in some way and before that it's just her reacting to things that have been done to her or her friends i mean i'm gonna throw a bit of a spanner in the works (laughs) as i always do i'm Um, not surprised at all no just uh just to pose a question kind of based on our previous uh, conversation about antagonism and would we maybe if we're not considering morgana a villain at all in season one and i would agree momo in season two also could we maybe consider her an antagonist to uther not to merlin but to uther i think that could be fairly accurate for the majority of season one they're very much in opposition on a lot of things certainly yeah i mean even like their first scene together in season one is them having a fight about him having a party after executing someone (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, like their 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 relationship is pretty antagonistic from the start. Yeah. yeah, it also brings up the question. I mean, obviously we talk about these like villains. We have to talk about them like from the point of view of either the audience or Merlin. But that's the that's the question. And we are like, Morgana is an antagonist to Uther, but Uther is not the protagonist necessarily of of this story don't tell uther that (laughs) yeah uther Uther certainly thinks he's a protagonist that's for sure but also Arthur also also thinks he's a protagonist (laughs) at merlin merlin thing is the only one who doesn't think he's the protagonist of the story yet he is um anyway coming coming back to the question is like villains in the point of view of whom and obviously, we have to consider that either we as the audience with, like, a complete moral understanding of the entire situation, as far as the show will let us see it, uh, have to judge who's the villain based on what we think is correct, or it's villain opposed to Merlin. So, Well, we kind of established that villain who is proactively doing evil things they can't really be from the point of view of the protagonist necessarily they have to be from our point of view what we consider to be evil things right because otherwise the protagonist would have to tell us oh this person is evil whereas that doesn't 
really happen. You know, I I don't think that that's entirely the case. I think with an antagonist, that like it can certainly like it would have to be more about who the character considers an antagonist, and that's why we can say Morgana is an antagonist to Uther and vice versa. But she's definitely not one to Merlin, and mm-hmm. that's where you maybe see, and you know, she's not evil at this point. But I think when it comes to someone doing evil things, maybe that needs to come more from us, the viewer, like who we consider to be the evil person in the show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think, Sarah? Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. And I also, I like that we have that option as well, because um, I think Merlin is meant to be a sort of morally gray character at times. And so I like, especially like in these earlier seasons where we get to see more of the motivations of the um, the people he's going up against, like some of the people we're going to discuss today, like Mary Collins and Sophia. And we get to see, okay, well, they're doing evil things, but they also have like this reasoning behind it. Um, and, you know, Merlin going against them, to what extent is he, you know, is he doing right or wrong in that? And so I think, like, leaving it up to the audience to kind of judge how evil really are these supposed villains, um, I think, makes the story more interesting and more engaging. Yeah, definitely. So do we want to, because I know in the script it's one way, but do we want to start kind of chronologically or do we want to just start with the biggest villain? I would like to go chronologically just because the biggest villain is going to take up probably the most time. So for me, it makes sense to just go chronologically because, like, just the the villainy grows <laughs> with <laughs> each one. Like, um, yeah. So Mary Collins, then our first kind of official villain of uh, of Merlin, who we meet in the pilot episode, and you know, immediately what we kind of just discussed and what you said, Sarah, about kind of the morality of the situation and we as the audience are supposed to decide whether or not they're evil or not and you know the the show is primarily for family so i think they want us to take a very black and white stance with the morality on a lot of this stuff at the beginning at least and yeah we're supposed to see mary collins as this evil character but yeah like we said at the end of the day she's just watched her son been executed for having magic and we don't even know if he was a sorcerer maybe he didn't like maybe he didn't even have magic maybe Uther just suspected him of magic because uh, his mother has magic and we don't even know that she's really just a plot device to kind of get the plot moving forward in the pilot but do we think she's evil Mm, no not Mm -hmm. not in the sense that we established what a villain is and what an antagonist is. I think in this case, she's an antagonist for Merlin in a way, because she threatens Arthur's life, and this is what basically brings Merlin into play into in this entire show. Mm-hmm. And uh, gives him the setup to become Arthur's manservant, and then, you know, the rest is history. So I, I don't think she's... We don't have enough information to know whether or not she's evil. She's mm-hmm. certainly not I I wouldn't say she's you know very good either because she has a she makes various choices. She kills Lady Helen. Yeah. Uh so that's crime number 1. And then she kills uh I forgot what her name is, the servant girl. 
Oh yeah, she kills her too. So she kills twice before she even gets round to trying to kill her. <laughs> exactly. And then there's the thing of like her reasoning is, you know, a son for a son and that's why she wants to kill Arthur rather than killing Uther. But also it was not Arthur who had her son executed, so she's trying to kill a third seemingly innocent person. So maybe she is a villain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now that you I, I think I've talked myself around to her being a villain yeah. after all. It, it it's sort of like it's a crime of passion, but it's a bit too calculated to be a crime of passion because Yeah. I mean know, she must have deceit. She must have done some kind of research or whatever to even know that Lady Helen was coming to to Camelot and, and went to find her in the woods and to kill her. Like, how does she know that? I mean, Twitter didn't exist back then. How did she hear about it? Were there posters in Camelot? Big event, Lady Helen comes to Camelot. Who knows? Yeah, see, okay, this this is the thought that I had um rewatching this episode is what is Mary Collins backstory because like if you look at the magic that she does she has this powerful magical amulet she knows a teleportation spell which i don't know if we ever see no, like no other one, characters no one that. else no one else knows- not even merlin who's supposed to be the most powerful of them all yeah yeah she knows this shape changing spell that is apparently perfect and even gives her this person's voice um, she knows how to use this, like, magical poppet thing to murder people. She knows how to, like, weave enchantments out of music. Like, she has some very, very advanced magical skills. And, like, where did she come from? Like, who is this person? <laughs> is, she, is she, like, it's... a former high priestess of the old religion or something? I have more questions about her plans. If she has this this doll to kill people, why doesn't she just use that on Arthur? Yeah. Well, maybe yeah. she has to actually, she has to see them, right? So maybe she could never get close enough to Arthur. Okay, maybe the maybe the idea was to really kill him in front of Uther, but then why did she get make Uther sleep? Like, Uther wouldn't have seen his son die with his eyes closed. <laughs> like, that's, uh, there's just, there's just so much flaw in this plan. I mean, Merlin is full of flawed plans. Um, I will say something though, Momo, when you were talking about her being an antagonist towards Merlin, because she like poses a threat to Arthur, my first thought was, Mary Collins is kind of the hero of this story in the Dragon's Core, because if it wasn't for her, <laughs> Merlin and Arthur would never have crossed paths, yeah. like, to and- become servant and master and our story would never begin so she's actually propelling the plot not protect like not preventing it it's yeah. kind of weird and, and merlin definitely didn't see her as an antagonist he was like i'll give her a hand <laughs> exactly <laughs> so she's actually kind of um a friend to our hero in many ways <laughs> yeah i i think where i i think where i had the initial thought that she's more of an antagonist is just that we like just because we have seen stories like this before we can sort of understand that it's painful to lose your son for like no crime like his only crime was to have magic and we we learn very early on that this is like people get killed just for having magic not doing anything bad with the magic just having magic like that's one of the first things we learn in this in this show and so we can sort of understand that she is grief-ridden and wants to 
avenge her son's death, but then the way she goes about it, and actually, you know, doing it, just revenge is never great, especially not when you murder people for it. Like, that's that's not how you do it. But I think, like, in terms of her backstory, I'm I'm with you, Sarah. I think that I'm really curious. And, I, I mean, I always saw her more as, like like a witch rather than like a priestess like she looks like she's dressed more like a witch she looks like she could live in the woods i don't know she just she seems a little a little more on the on the wild side <laughs> like i don't know she just seems like she's not really she doesn't look or sound like any of the priestesses that we've come across like even the way she says her spells doesn't really sound like them so i always just imagined that she was kind of an outlier and I don't know if that's just because the the show hadn't really figured out what direction they wanted to go in yet with the whole magic aspect of it and what magic users were going to look like but yeah she is very different and like you guys said very advanced and I again I have a feeling that might have just been to do with bad writing and a and a low visual effects budget <laughs> like they were like oh we probably can't do this for every character um, one thing I will say, she does have an amazing talent for saying sinister double entendres. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, her, you know, that that bond between a mother and son—it's just irreplaceable. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely too late for Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's such a good line, though. Her and Merlin should form a club, which would be entitled something like "I have a secret, and yet I can't help but give hints as to what my secret is." <laughs> with weird lines, <laughs> it's just stop, please. You're trying to be undercover. <laughs> um, I mean. I don't know if we have anything more to say on Mary Collins, but I mean, it's kind of a good segue into other children that didn't do anything wrong and yet are being punished for it. <laughs> and that's Sophia, <laughs> who actually is supposed to be innocent in the crimes of her father. And yet she got punished as well. And I mean, this is just my first question about her is why was she punished? Because our, our explanation by the she is just, the crime extends to her too. But why? <laughs> Maybe she was complicit in it in some way. No, but he clearly says that the crime was mine, not my daughter's. Yeah, but maybe she knew about it and didn't tell the she-elders. My my interpretation was always just that, like, the she have their own harsh laws that are different from human laws. Because, I mean, the like, the whole conceit of the story is that the she believe it so terrible for one she to kill another one that you know this man and his daughter have to be banished and yet the she clearly have no problem at all with killing humans so clearly they have a different their own morality that's very different from human morality um so i just kind of understood that like they just saw it as that that's part of your punishment is that like your family has to be punished along with you. Yeah. Well, I, I was about yeah. to say that, that it's not actually Sophia who's being punished. It It's just Ulfric's punishment to see his daughter always also having to live a mortal life. That's his, like it's his punishment to see his daughter live in a mortal life. It's not Sophia who's being punished. It's Ulfric who's being punished. Right. Okay. Um, 
but I think what you just said, Sarah, is interesting. You know, they're like, oh, they have a different morality to us, but we, I mean, we can see based on the dialogue that we get from them in the in the episode that they consider humans to be beneath them. So it's sort of like, well, we won't kill other like us as humans. We won't kill another human. That's bad, but we'll kill animals. That's good. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's sort of that mm-hmm. kind of thing. For that, that's what I would maybe interpret it as. Like, they don't see it as killing humans. They just see it as killing something that's beneath them, something that they can kill. Like, we would kill a cow. Why not? You know? Yeah. Or an ant. Um, no one would think twice, even though I'm sure they have families and jobs, you know? <laughs> the cows. The ants. They work very hard. Oh, right. Have you, have the you ever seen a, a family of ants? God, yes. they're very, very hardworking. So, yeah, think twice, guys, before you kill an ant. They might have a child at home. <laughs> um, but, like, I think Sophia is really interesting because she's very – I would say that she's very, very antagonistic in her behavior, but she's really kind of egged on by her father, and she's only doing what she thinks is necessary to gain her place back. And if we – agree that the she maybe just see humans as you know things more like animals i mean she says that they're feeble like like that is the adjective that she uses that they're just feeble beings then maybe they're not evil after all from their point of view because well it's not evil yeah to but kill humans. but a lot of like morgana in seasons three to five certainly doesn't think of herself as evil there's a very different dynamic between Morgana who understands the idea of human morality to something that isn't human trying to be on the same page as human morality in terms of killing one of ours like that that's just not the same dynamic at all like they're on a completely different level they are, are you know different beings than I wouldn't human. say so though because I think Morgana and maybe not necessarily season three but certainly seasons four and five absolutely season five is of the mindset that people who don't have magic, she doesn't care about them. They can they can die for all she cares. Like look at how ruthless she is with like killing innocent people in Camelot just to get the knights to talk. Yeah. You know, she certainly adopts this idea of these people are lesser than I am. Mm. You know. And she doesn't think there's anything wrong with that. But like Sophia I think is just I would argue, even though I don't like her as a character, I think she's a bit annoying, to be honest. I think that she is coming from a much more um, innocent place than Morgana is in later seasons, because she really is just going along with her father's plan, and like, especially at the beginning, until she actually physically, you know, tries to kill Arthur. We don't really know what her plan is. She's just basically enchanted him, so she's not, you know, doing anything that's i can see like their plan coming a lot more from this desperation um than other villains that we've had i know that mary collins was obviously also from desperation but i don't know i just feel like for me personally there's something different when you're talking about a different creature a different being than you are humans i just think that it's just maybe not useful to treat them kind of on the same plane obviously we as the audience do because we're like killing is bad you should not kill humans but if the show was about the she they probably would be like well humans aren't important humans are nothing like we can kill humans just like humans kill ants like it's like it's no big deal you know what i mean well and i mean also like you get the scene 
when like the, their death scene where you can see like how upset she is uh, to lose her father you know well, even how upset she is when she sees that her father isn't coming to Avalon with yeah. her yeah yeah that's true I'm only doing this so we can both go back yeah or something like that is what she says like she she only wants to be with her father and to to give him back the life that they are used to or that they were yeah. used to yeah I mean it's I don't like when I see them in that moment especially I definitely think that you're supposed to feel some kind of sympathy for them as characters I mean at the end of the day you know that Arthur isn't gonna be killed you know like the show is still has uh, a few episodes left of the season but I think that I definitely felt sympathy for them because you know if this is the only way that they can get back and atone for their their sins or that you know she can get back and then you find out that yeah she's actually not going to be going back with him at all and she didn't know that it is really really heartbreaking I think and you know the fact that he's also sacrificing his relationship with his daughter to live a life on his own so that she can have like a better life that you know I like I think it's a really touching thing to do but it's just a shame that her whole character kind of had to be this arrogant kind of like I'm just not a big fan of Holiday Granger's acting to be honest with you and I think that's maybe why I have such a problem with Sophia I don't think she's for me I don't I don't think she's good in this episode. I mean, I uh, I've seen her in other things. I think, I think I have. I just I don't know. I like her when she's doing her like whole doll like enchanting at thing. But then I but like then I have those moments when when she is getting angry and like she's saying to her father like, oh, you know, he he saved me today. You know, someone so feeble saved me. And I'm like, you're like so short. Like, why are you, <laughs> like, hype down? Like, I'm not scared of you in the slightest. Like, Yeah, what? but, but <laughs> you know, if she had her she powers, she would be tiny, but she'd be way more powerful. Like, I can see that. Like, she's, she's one of those, you know, one of those small dogs who doesn't realize how, how small they are, and they just start the biggest fights and always think they can win. Because she hasn't realized yet how small she actually is. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I've, I, I always saw her more like a bratty teenager than a dangerous, uh, like creature. <laughs> like the, like the she that we actually see in this episode, I felt was more scary than she was in human size. Like he had the teeth and he had the attitude and he had the voice and she just looks like she's 16. And I'm just like, I'm not scared of you. I liked her when she was doing all her other things. Like I think she did, was really great at the whole manipulating thing and like kind of acting really innocent and stuff. But I think unfortunately she looked for me a bit too young and too innocent to play the, I am an ancient creature who will destroy you with a, with a flick of the wrist as soon as I'm in my true form. I just didn't buy it in the slightest, but if other people did, that's absolutely great. I just, I just personally didn't, but um, yeah. uh, do we have anything oh. else to speak about Sophia? Well, I did. There was one thing I was wondering about, like how, so I didn't understand why was it necessary for Arthur to ask for her hand in marriage for their plot to work. 
Like that just seemed, it actually seemed like it was counterproductive to them, like getting Arthur out to the lake to kill him. I think that was, um, I'm trying to remember, is she, is she telling him to marry her? I don't think she is. I, I, think... I think, I think all she is doing is making him think that he's in love with her. And then the whole wanting to marry her is a very impulsive author thing. Because he <laughs> yes. keeps, I mean, because he keeps doing that. He does that in season three with Gwen, for example. He does that in season two with Vivian. You know, he just, he just keeps doing exactly that. Every time he's convinced he's in love with someone, he just immediately goes to marriage. So, yeah, Sophia, I think, wasn't actually trying to get Arthur to marry her. She was just enchanting him so well that he was like, <laughs> great, that's it. Because <laughs> the, the scene before the marriage proposal thing with Uther, that's when she's like, you know... Um, no one will stand in our way because we're in love and she's standing over him while he's sitting on the bed, right? And then the next time we see them, he's proposing marriage and Uther's like, what? <laughs> um, yeah, I never knew why Uther had an issue with them marrying. I just felt it was kind of in there for the, to you know, the plot must advance somehow, um, which is yeah. always my tagline for Merlin. Um, yeah. Well, but... well, my head canon is that it's because they've lost their kingdom and therefore no longer have any actual political power. And, you know, Uther just has his he has his sight set on someone more powerful for That's Arthur. That's true. That's true. Like a sorcerer. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, so they uh, speaking of people that are powerful. Ooh. Yeah, there you go. Uh, we have that was the... so awful. What? It was much better than some of yours. We have Nimue, who I think, for all intents and purposes, if we're talking about, like, you know, things we have to categorize as our big bad of Merlin season one as the overarching villain. And the one thing I will say, you know, is that I do think that Nimue is a bit of a ridiculous villain in terms of the way that she's written and the places that she's put in the story and her actual role and what she gets to do but because of her mysterious backstory because of her relationship to Uther uh, and her, her, her very long and turbulent relationship with Uther and her relationship to the main plot even though it's not executed well she still in my opinion is one of the better villains overall of Merlin which is saying so little <laughs> that it's kind of like it just shows you how awful the rest of them are because Amelia Fox I think is much better as more goes than uh Michelle Ryan is as Nimue but we've said it before more goes has absolutely no place being a villain in Merlin because she has nothing to do with any of the characters apart from Morgana but you know Nimue has actual reasons to be a villain she has an actual origin story which we never got to see and it's just p making me pine even more for that prequel i wanted so should we should we maybe talk first about nimway's backstory then and like what we think brought her to this place sure would that be good i don't know <laughs> i'm just like throwing it out there to give some like chronology to all of this um 
So Nimue, we know, was a friend to Uther and was welcomed at court when magic was legal and magic thrived in the kingdom. And Uther trusted her enough that he came to her with uh, the problem of him and uh, his and his wife's fertility. And I think this is where we have our first stumbling block and where we have conflicting information because this is basically whether you believe the uh, illusion that Morgos creates in season two for Arthur when Igraine says that uh, Uther betrayed Igraine and went to Nimue with help of conceiving a child. Whereas that's, I don't know if I believe that, but if that's true, then it really does paint Nimue in a, in a kind of more sympathetic light. Whereas, you know, if they went to her together, then I think it already kind of makes it look like Uther and Agrain are kind of on the same page, that they're asking for help and that Nimue, I mean, I think Nimue stabbed them in the back, but what do you guys think? I think it's never made clear who chooses the exchange victim, is what I'm going to call it. Yeah. <clears throat> like, in, I think we've talked about this in La Morte d'Arthur, in the final episode of season one, when Merlin goes to Nimue to get the cup of life, or like get the, no, not cup of life, but like elixir of life or whatever it is he gets to revive Arthur and to save him from the questing beast. And then it's his mother who is going to die in his stead. But then Gaius goes to the Isle of the Blessed and somehow manages to sacrifice himself instead of Huneth. So it's, it's sort of all over the place who makes the decision who is going to die instead of the person who's supposed to live. Like, is it Nimue who makes a decision or is it the magic? Is it the the gods? Who the fuck is it? And this knowledge would be so relevant to the plot to know whether Nimue deliberately sacrificed Igraine and then Huneth or if it was beyond her control. You know, I mean, the only thing she probably knew was that Merlin wouldn't be killed. And I think she should have told him that. But she also probably didn't know who was going to get killed instead. But it's just, it's all very murky, in my opinion. Well, I mean, this is the problem. It's that in 113, Nimue says very clearly for a life to be saved or given then a life must be taken so that balance can be restored in the world and in that respect I mean uh, unless she was very inexperienced at the time but I doubt that that's the case otherwise how could she perform this magic in the first place she would have had to come to Uther and Degrain with the same information with the same clause if a life is to be given then a life has to be taken and when that was said I like anyone would assume that Uther and Igraine would say, okay, whose life? Or yes, one of us will sacrifice our life. Like, I don't know what what conversation went down. However, Uther clearly didn't know because he says he, that he didn't know that Igraine would die. And it was a huge shock. So either Nimue didn't tell them that someone would have to die in the first place, or she told them that someone would die and lied about who it was I just don't buy it that she had no idea and if she knew 
that she didn't know who was going to die, then she could also have said that. Because, yeah, by 113, she's already a villain, so she has no reason to tell the truth and be nice to Merlin. You know, she wants to manipulate him. But if what she's saying is true in Excalibur, that she was a friend to Uther, then why would she try to manipulate him? Why not just lay her cards on the table and say, look, I don't know. One of you might die. It might not be any of you, but someone's going to die. It just her story doesn't actually add up that she says to Uther, I had no idea that she was going to die. And if I knew she was going to die, I would never have given you a son. That's just clearly bullshit based on what we then see later on happening when Merlin comes to bargain for his mother's life. It's it's just complete bollocks. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I do I do wonder if it it could be like what you were mentioning earlier about inexperience not necessarily that she didn't know how to do the spell or, or whatever but more like maybe that was the first time she'd ever performed this particular magic and so she didn't know exactly how the life taking thing was going to work um and so you know she didn't realize that it could be anybody maybe she thought that she had the power to choose who it was going to be or something like that but i do think it's it's such a shame that like considering how many interesting tidbits they give us about her past with everybody in the series, how big, you know, how big of an influence she was in, in everybody's past story that we never really got her point of view on those past events, or at least like a clean point of view on, you know, like where we know for sure this is really what she thinks and she's not just like lying or manipulating to someone. Yeah. It's really frustrating to me. I mean, I think that based on what we can piece together, well, look, look, I don't think that the show wants us to believe that Nimue is necessarily lying. But to me, it's clear that she's lying because, like I said, her story just doesn't add up. I mean, I know that Gaius was also around for Arthur's birth, so he's had experience with this kind of magic. But even he knew to tell Merlin that the elders would demand a life in return you know like when he went off to try and do whatever and i don't think that nimue is that young i mean i think we're supposed to assume she's been around for a very long time I and mean, she doesn't look old enough to be michelle ryan's age <laughs> if she ages like a normal person you know because that means she would have had to be a child in uther and Egrain's period which obviously she wasn't so i think that what probably happened was either she made an innocent mistake or she purposefully misled them. But either way, I just don't buy it that Uther, who we know loved his wife more than anything, would intentionally endanger her life. I think he would rather just not have a son. I mean, we we know that based on his character. I mean, you're suggesting that Nimue deliberately didn't tell them who would die but that begs the question what did Nimue hope to gain from Igraine dying like what did she think would happen what did she think would would be an outcome in her favor if she just let Igraine die well the only thing I can think of is that if she'd given them hope that they could have a son and then she found out that someone would die and she had an inkling that it could be a grain. She might have lied 
to protect herself or to not enrage Uther because I'm assuming he already had a bit of an anger problem. So maybe she thought, oh, shit, if I tell him that his wife's going to die and that this was his only chance at having a son, he might turn on me and then I'll be in the firing line. So maybe she was just like, I'm just going to hope for the best. Sort of like the mad scientist that switches the machine on with their eyes closed, you know. Hmm. I mean, because I do feel like her speech in Excalibur feels genuine, but yeah. I also, but I also see the way Uther is when he talks about a grain, and I see the way Uther is with his son. And then he didn't have a son, so he didn't have anyone to protect in that sense. And I feel he would have protected a grain at all costs. I just don't buy mm. that he would have done what a grain a grain quote unquote says that he did which is basically bargain her life i don't think that's true in the slightest yeah i think it's it's possible i think that's what i've sort of adopted for myself as as a valid headcanon is that when she did this for uther and the grain she did indeed think she could like sort of um influence who's going to be sacrificed for it and then she found out that she couldn't indeed influence it or something happened that took choice away from her and then over time she learned more about it and then that's why in um in the present now from canon's point of view it's that she didn't actually have any say over who gets sacrificed. Except maybe it's like... Okay, what I can see is that the person who offers themselves as a sacrifice gets taken unless this person is more important in the great scheme of things, like Merlin. So the next important person to them or the next of kin gets taken instead. And that's why it's Huneth who is going to die instead of Merlin because Merlin is too important to to the to magic to die, mm-hmm. and that's why it uh, you know it crosses over to Huneth. And then when Gaius goes to the Isle of the Blessed and offers his own life in exchange for Huneth, that's why Gaius is quote unquote allowed to sacrifice himself and actually be him. And so maybe. Maybe what could have happened, obviously, this is a headcanon and just, you know, me making up things to make sense of of canon. And I think I read this in a fanfic, actually, probably. I can't remember which one it was. I'm sorry, I'll never find it again. But what might have happened is that um, Huneth, uh, Huneth, that Nimue told Arthur, I'm getting all my characters mixed up, that Nimue told Uther and Igraine the terms of you know how it will have to be that another life will have to be given in exchange for bringing their son into the world and either she really didn't know who it would be and they were hope they were all hoping for the best or she was convinced that she could influence who it was going to be or she said someone would have to offer their own life and then Nim- uh, Igraine offered her own pretty much instantly. And mm-hmm. that's why Igraine got taken. Except 
Uther didn't, like, maybe Uther wasn't there when Nimue told Igraine that, and then Igraine offered herself while she was pregnant, or something like that. That's mm-hmm. just, you know, that's just my ideas of how it could have gone down, and then over time, Nimue realized that, you know, she can't influence who it is. She can only make the magic happen, but she mm-hmm. can't decide who gets sacrificed. The person themselves has to sacrifice themselves. Yeah, I mean, now that I'm remembering the conversation they have in Excalibur he says you betrayed that trust and she says I did as you asked I used the magic that you so despised to give your barren wife a son that you craved so perhaps it is true that Uther went to Nimue himself without Igraine but I would imagine that that's more because maybe he was hoping to that you know she would have news for him being like yes i can do this and then he wouldn't have to tell igraine or worry igraine so she would just become pregnant naturally without knowing that it was magic and then everything would be fine so perhaps they didn't go to nimue together perhaps they did do it on his own but again like what you said momo i just i don't believe that knowing the terms as we know them the audience uther would ever have actually agreed to it so I just think that it was probably a giant misunderstanding, but I think Nimue not owning her part in all of this is very, very indicative of her character. <laughs> um, because what ends up happening is, of course, Nimue dies. Oh, sorry, not Nimue. I'm getting my characters mixed up now. Igraine dies and Uther goes on a murderous spree that kills all of uh, Nimue's friends. And um, in the meantime, Gaius uh, pledges allegiance to Uther. That much we know. Uh, in a like, and essentially um, forsakes Igraine. And I've always kind of said, hmm, I wonder if there was something there because the way they talk to each other in Lamorte Arthur, I'm like, there's a history there. And in the meantime, Nimue somehow gets away, escapes, whatever she does. She is obviously not killed, and. We don't know what happens to her between the Great Purge and when we meet her in the Mark of Nimue. So do we have any headcanons on what she's been doing this whole time and how she's faring to seeing her friends murdered before her eyes? And how did she get away when everyone else was killed? She was practicing sewing and the results we can see her wearing. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Sarah? What do you think happened to Nimue in those 20 years? Um, I don't know. I sort of feel like probably during the purge, maybe she tried to fight back. Maybe she led a resistance or something, but then obviously they failed. So she went into hiding and was, you know, biding her time, creating her plans for when she would come back and, and get her vengeance on Uther and Camelot. I did, I did read a fic like that. Um, it's like a reimagining. It's actually one of my recs that I'm going to give later. But it's like a reimagining of season one uh, with Merlin being more proactive. But as part of it, like Nimue is actually the one who's behind every single like bad thing that happens in season one. Like, for example, she she was the one who like stole the unicorn and put it in Arthur's path to try to get him to kill it and bring a curse on um, on Camelot. So things like that. Yeah, and it kind of, like, wove her more into, like, everything that was happening throughout season one as, like, 
she'd created this overall plot of all these different ways that she could bring Camelot down. So mm-hmm. I think I think it could be something like that, you know, why did she suddenly show up again at this point? Like she must have been planning and plotting and, you know, now she's putting her plans into action. Well, I mean, speaking of plans, I think it's important to kind of distinguish it. Nimue has two separate things going on in her story. She's clearly antagonist and villain towards Uther and then by extension Camelot, I suppose, the same way that Morgana is. But she has this weird thing with Merlin and we first see her kind of take note of Merlin, I think, at the end of the Mark of Nimue, because in the Mark of Nimue, she's trying to affect Camelot directly. I don't think she even knows who Merlin is. And then by the end of the Mark of Nimue, she realizes that he's thwarted her plans. And then, of course, the poison chalice is a direct uh, way to kill Merlin. She then realizes his importance and then decides that he's too important to kill. So I guess my question is, it, does she also have kind of these seer, future-seeing abilities the same way that Morgana does and the same way that Kilgara does? How does she know about Merlin's importance? And if she knows about it by in between episode four and episode 13, how did she not know about it before? Because it seems like the druids already know who Emrys is. The dragon already knows that he's going to be important. I think her relationship to Uther and that part of her villainy is brilliant, even though she should be in it more. Like you said, Sarah, I think having her woven into the season more would be awesome. But her relationship to our protagonist, unfortunately, is poor. And that, I think, is where Merlin villains in general fall flat because, of course, like I say, Merlin and Uther don't have a relationship. So when you're creating a villain, you need them to be antagonistic towards Camelot as a whole if you want everybody to be in danger, which that means Uther and then by extension Arthur. And Merlin, even though he is involved with Arthur, is not involved with the kingdom. He's his own separate story. So I think that's a huge issue. And I don't think they pulled it off with Nimue. But what do you guys think? I think especially because of like Nimue's part in the actual Arthurian legend of like that she's the one who ultimately seduced and imprisoned Merlin. Um, I thought, yeah, she really got done dirty (laughs) in the way that like they they kind of nerfed her, you know, her importance to the entire story here. Um, But yeah, like I, I wish that they'd. I, I actually, when I was watching season one originally, I thought, oh, this Nimue character is going to be like the antagonist throughout the entire series. Because, of course, like, you know, Nimue is is exactly. Merlin's, like ultimate downfall. Yeah. And then like the fact that they killed her off at the end of season one, I was like, well, but then how does. OK, I guess she just isn't that important to Merlin's story after all. OK. Which is ridiculous because <laughs> not only is she the reason why Uther is the way he is. Not only is she the reason why the story is told in the first place because of the ban on magic, she is, like you said, also an instrumental figure in the legends where they're drawing from and like just wasted, just pure waste. And this is the one thing that Merlin is really lacking, unless we want to consider Uther 
an overarching villain i personally don't because i don't think he is doing enough in merlin's particular story but i bring it back to all these other fandoms and things that i watch you you know shows like robin hood and atlantis and legend of the seeker those kind of shows that have that same kind of merlin feel they have a villain of the week but they need an overarching villain. In Robin Hood, it's, of course, the Sheriff of Nottingham and Guy of Gisborne. Atlantis had Pacify, the amazing Sarah Parrish. This, and- is, this is something that most shows will have. I mean, look at Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones had a lot of infighting and, like, you know, was about the different people who think they have a claim to, to the Iron Throne fighting amongst amongst each other and all of that. But the overarching thing for a long time was the the White Walkers, the basically the zombies who were going to invade the country and kill everyone indiscriminately. So, you know, you even had that overarching enemy that was like stretched across all the seasons. And I've been I've been thinking ever since we did our season one recap and purposefully didn't really talk about Nimue much because she was going to come up in this episode is that Nimue was grossly underused, not just in this season, but in the entire show, but especially even just in the one season that she's in. Yep. Like she was supposed to be the first season's main villain and she's in what, two episodes near the start and then... Uh, she's in Excalibur, but only like again in the background as instru- like someone who makes something happen, but then doesn't really show up for the rest of the episode. And then she comes back at the very end, and like she tried to kill all of Camelot once, then she tried to kill Merlin, then she tried to kill Merlin and Camelot and Arthur again, and then she just tried to do her job but did it badly at the end, and that's what she got killed for. And that's just that is just so ridiculous the only thing i can possibly think of especially with like a first season is maybe they just didn't want to count their chickens before they'd hatched and yeah that's what i was thinking yeah like if we just end you know because we've all seen what happens when you end a season on a next time like atlantis season two which got cancelled before the third season was you know filmed and maybe they just want you know because season one could basically just stand as its own show if it wanted to honestly sometimes it should so i think that's really what i'm missing from just merlin as a whole and i know that seasons one and two are really for them i think just this big setup to make morgana the big bad for the rest of the show which then she is our overarching villain for better or for worse (laughs) um but i just really think that nimue should have been around until the very very end and then maybe you know uh banded with Morgana you know for the remainder of the show and like I said I can only really imagine that they got rid of her because they thought well if for some reason we don't get picked up you know Nimue is an instrumental character in the legends we've given her this antagonistic relationship with Merlin and if season one is where it finishes then you know Nimue was his final battle just like she kind of you know is in the legends except he wins this time and then you know it ends on him and guys and and happily ever after and that's the end of our show i guess that makes sense that yeah kind of thinking you know? i can i can definitely see that and it's literally the only excuse i will accept for for how it ended for nimue it does not excuse anything else they did to nimue in that season no and i'm coming not. i'm coming back to this one thing that i've already complained about in 
our Excalibur review is that I'm still mad that the BBC didn't pay for a second actress to portray Nimoy when she was talking to Uther, or at least pay for better makeup to make Michelle Ryan look different. I mean, they did it for Eve Miles in the first episode. (laughs) Why couldn't they do something similar for Michelle Ryan in that episode? Because from the dialogue they have, and from what's happened before in this episode, it is highly in something you've said that, you know, if, if Nimue ages at a, at a pace, uh, close to what other people age, like she should have been much older now or super, super young when Arthur was born, you know, because she can't be Michelle Ryan's age <laughs> now and have been Michelle Ryan's age back then. So they should have either used a second actress or done more makeup to show us that, you know, Nimue looks different to Uther because he clearly recognizes her. He clearly recognizes Nimue as Nimue, even though she doesn't look like the Nimue that he knew when he was younger, because Gaius also knew Nimue back then, and he doesn't recognize her when she looks like Michelle Ryan. Exactly. That whole part of the plot is just ridiculous, and I don't know if they just forgot or they made a mistake like I don't know what they were thinking or if they just thought we wouldn't notice but yeah she's clearly referred to looking different because Gaius doesn't recognize her you know and I don't think that that turban is the reason no (laughs) it's just it's ridiculous um but I would like to just kind of go back to what we were discussing about her and Merlin's relationship and what we think her deal is with Merlin. What were her plans for him? And where do we think she finds out about this great importance? Because why is she the last one to find out about this? But, you know, because she tries to kill him. And, you know, that would have been a big mistake, she says anyway. So why do we think it took her so long to realize? And do you think that she really did want him to join forces with her and be like an evil pair or whatever her plans were? I mean, I think, I think it was that when she first saw him, she just thought, oh, there's this sorcerer in Camelot who's getting in the way of my plans. I need to take him out. And then eventually, like, she found out maybe, I mean, she does like spy on people with her scrying. So maybe she was like spying on the druids or she was spying on Merlin's conversations with the dragon or something and found out that he's actually Emrys. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, so he's like far more important than she really believed. And then she was like, well, if I can get this really important sorcerer who I know has this great destiny to like bring back magic, if I can get him on my side and like kind of take control of his destiny for myself, then, you know, I can I can achieve all of my goals. Yeah. And like her whole thing in La Morte d'Arthur was that. And I mean, we talked about this in the episode review and I didn't understand her plan at all because she was like, with my help, Arthur will become king. And I was like, so your plan is to make Arthur king. And then she's like, you're you're a creature of the old religion. You should join me. I'm like, so your plan isn't to make Arthur king. Your plan is to get Merlin on your side. Like, what do you what is it that you want? I think she's just bored. I don't think that she really knows what she wants, because I having i mean you know watched the show 
very, very closely for many years, more than the average audience member, obviously, being part of the fandom, I still can't figure out what she wants. So how is the average audience member supposed to figure out what she wants? I think that we really, really missed out on seeing the Merlin and Nimue relationship as it is in the Legends played out in the show, because I think that could have been a really interesting relationship, especially if you wanted to put, like, the more, you know, romantic kind of twist on it that it kind of does have in the Legends, and then do away with the whole Freya arc, because that was pointless, <laughs> and, like, actually have Nimue be the Lady of the Lake, which she's supposed to be. Um, to be fair, in the Legends, there are many Ladies of the Lake, so... Okay, fine, but she's one of them, you know... I mean, there are no Freyas being the Lady of the Lake in the legend, that's for sure. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking about, without necessarily changing, you know, a huge amount in terms of, like, keeping Nimue alive, how could we have improved her relationship with Merlin? Because her and Uther are already, like I said, they have plenty of reasons to dislike one another. We first meet Nimue in Merlin, maybe when she and Merlin have some kind of relationship maybe she already knows of his destiny and is trying to get him on her side already and we don't know who she is as a character until later on until we find out her you know her real name like you know because obviously if you tell her if we know what her real name is then the game's already kind of been given away but what if what if it could work like that like what if she what if he knew her from Yeldor or something like that who knows or even or even just as, you know, as it happened in episode four, where she was in disguise as this beautiful serving yeah, girl that he yeah. was clearly crushing on. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they formed a relationship that way. And then eventually it came out who she really was. Yeah, that would be awesome. But, but yeah. I think... Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. I was just grumbling. <laughs> <laughs> I think my my dream uh when I was first watching it and I was thinking like, oh, this could happen and this could happen um, before I reached the end of season one, I I envisioned Nimue as being an antagonist throughout the entire series. Um, you know, maybe somebody that like Merlin loses to early on, like at the end of season one or something. And then eventually, you know, he grows powerful enough to stand against her and that Morgana would keep more of like like kind of what her role was in To Kill a King, where she she sort of joins the resistance and becomes a rebel, where maybe she isn't necessarily evil, but she's working against Uther because she doesn't agree with his policies. And so Morgana was more of like an in-between character. And that's where I saw the series going, and that would have been my dream for Merlin. That's where it the- should have gone. That's where it should have gone. And I've always and I've said this many times that I think Nimue should have replaced Morgos as Morgana's sister in the show. I would have been very happy for that to happen. Yeah. Honestly, I don't I don't care about like the the sibling relationship. Like it doesn't have to be in there for me to work. It could just have been the the entire like friendship relationship, you know, it's and then Morgana learning magic from Nimue and becoming a high priestess with Nimue's help behind Uther's back. But then basically. we wouldn't have the incest. Oh, uh, I forgot how important that is to you. I'm it's sorry. It's just really important. Like, I'm, you can't I'm have sorry. a show without incest. I'm sorry. I forgot the importance of incest to you personally. Uh, is Morgos 
oh my god, what the fuck is wrong with me today? Is Nimue um, an effective villain or effective antagonist? Because she fails almost on every single one of her plans, um, including the poison chalice, which was the most kind of ridiculous, I think, of all of them. And so I guess my question is, are the protagonists just that clever or is she just that terrible at her job at being a villain? I think it's what you said and that she's just bored. And so she doesn't really mean for any of these plots to, to succeed. She's just entertaining herself by causing drama. Which is basically the same thing she did on EastEnders. So that kind of makes sense. <laughs> Michelle Ryan, not Nimue, sorry. Only the British people listening to the podcast will get that joke. Um, but in terms of like, well, I don't know, because I think that, you know, in the mark of Nimue, she clearly wants to cause disruption in Camelot. So, I'd, and again, in, in The Poison Chalice, she wants to cause war. And in Excalibur, she wants Uther to die. But they all seem to be kind of just like these fragments of plans that don't really come together. And again, I I don't know if it's just kind of the writing and the fact that she's not written very well, or if, like you said, Sarah, she just doesn't really care about these plans kind of coming to fruition. And she's just like, I'm just going to annoy Merlin this week. This week, I'm going to annoy Uther. Next week, I'm going to annoy Arthur. And coming up with like witty one-liners that I can give to people as they're hanging from a precipice surrounded by spiders. <laughs> The last yeah, yes. face you'll ever see. Oh it's god! So but also, but also, you're not to, uh, you're not destined to die at my hand. Which one is it? <laughs> she's so bored. She's she, so bored. She um, really is. She's really ancient. Um, she, you know, she has it disguised, obviously, to make herself look younger. She's very, very, very old, and she's just really stopped caring about a lot of things. And it's just like looking for that rush of, of excitement that she used to feel when she was younger. Would we have preferred her to be a villain all the way throughout the entire show or get killed off at a certain point, like halfway through? Like Morgoz was a villain for a couple of seasons, but then she died, for example. Like, would we have preferred Morgana to take over as a full time villain eventually or not? Is my question. Hmm. It could have gone similar to how Morgoz eventually died once Morgana was, you know, a grown-up villain. Obviously, Morgana might have been a better villain with the help of Nimue than she was with the help of Morgos. So... No, I don't, I don't think Morgana was ever that great as a villain, which is why I think it would have been nice to see her as maybe somebody who was more in a gray area, where, like, she was working against Uther, so a lot of times she was an antagonist for Arthur and Merlin, but they didn't necessarily hate her or think that she was evil, and there was still some of that like love and affection between them from the earlier seasons. Mm -hmm. I would have liked her to like maintain that sort of relationship with them throughout most of the series, and then, I don't know, maybe at the end they could have reconciled or she could have, you know, gone full evil by the end or something. But I think it would have made more sense to have Nimue or someone else, like, be more of the overarching evil. Well, because she doesn't actually, uh, Morgana, I mean, um, in the legend, uh, in the legends, I don't, I don't think she's necessarily, like, hates Arthur, right? She's just kind of on a different path to what he is, if I remember. I don't really... I haven't read them in a long time. 
Yeah, yeah, I failed she... to do the research ahead of the time, sorry. Well, um, it's not about Morgana, to be fair, so that's... No, but um, Nimue, I also forgot to do the research on Nimue and the Legends, so I'm sorry. Um, in the Legend, Morgana was originally just kind of like a, a sort of fairy in the forest character, and then like as she became more important, she became an antagonist to Gwen specifically, for some reason, probably just because like they had to make the women fight each other. Um, but yeah, she, she was always like more antagonistic to Gwen and trying to like get in the way of Gwen doing things and, um, like breaking up Guinevere and Arthur, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, whereas obviously Nimue is much more Merlin's antagonist in the, well, antagonist slash related to Merlin in some way or another through the legends. And they have a relationship that's kind of just theirs and other people aren't really involved in that. But, um, yeah, she's just, I think at the end of the day, like we all agree, she's just grossly underutilized in every way, shape or form. I don't really know what could have been done to help that. I like your idea, uh, well, it was not you, your idea, Sarah, but what you said about that fic where she's actually the one orchestrating all of the season one shenanigans that go on. But I also think that we could have really done with some flashbacks, like I've said. But again, I think we forget and i'm very very guilty of always forgetting this that the show is about merlin and it's about arthur and it's not actually about the older generation (laughs) or about nimue and they just kind of wanted her to be a bit of a cackling villain um but it's a shame that this is the only show out of the ones that were kind of airing at the time that really just suffered from a villainless plot and i mean i would argue maybe that the overarching villain of Merlin as a whole is just Merlin's secret I mean that's really what is driving a lot of his internal conflict and then by extension the ban on magic which obviously extends to Uther but that's not really true is it because as soon once Uther is dead it's still a conflict and it's still a huge conflict that and you know almost ruins Merlin and Arthur's relationship so I think the keep the magic secret is the main villain if you like of Merlin but it's not really enough is it <laughs> sorry I was I was quickly doing some background research on Nimue in the legends past that Momo that like look we're done <laughs> just, just kill the horse there's no point <laughs> No. Well, but there is no there is something interesting about Nimue in the Legends and I mean this highly depends on um obviously which version of the legends we are talking about because like I said earlier depending on whether this got cut from the episode or not there are many ladies of the lake in the legends and they're not necessarily all the same character like there's a lady of the lake who was the one to raise Lancelot, but that's not necessarily the same Lady of the Lake who gives Arthur Excalibur. And then there's also one Lady of the Lake who probably was Nimue, who became Merlin's apprentice and his lover. And the way this happened is that basically Merlin, like from what I remember from the Myths and Legends podcast on a topic, is that Merlin, who is not the cute young Colin Morgan type in the Legends, but more of a creepy old dude type in the Legends, he basically stalked Nimue until she agreed to become his apprentice and lover. And so she 
finally took his revenge once she got became more powerful than him. She trapped him in either a tree or the crystal cave, depending on what version you go with, if I remember correctly. And this is what more or less kills Merlin, because he's just trapped for all eternity and can't do anything else ever again. So this is very interesting in that Nimue actually became more powerful than Merlin, and Merlin was the one who teach her how to become that way. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So we can probably move on to Rex then. Let's have some stats instead. So Mary Collins has her own tag on AO3. It's Mary Collins, parenthesis Merlin. There are six whole works tagged with her. I'm pretty convinced that most people will just tag her as Lady Helen and forget that not it's not Lady Helen who's the villain, it's Mary Collins, but that's fine. Because there are only 27 works tagged with Lady Helen either. Anyway, so that's about not quite the same, but just not a lot of works either. Sophia, on the other hand, has also her own tag. It's Sophia, parenthesis Merlin. And she has 211 works associated with the character tag. And she even gets a couple of ships. And the most popular is... Sarah, do you want to take a guess? Sophia Arthur? Yes, that's correct. It's 53 works in this. Although I suspect that a lot of these are Sophia Arthur as a past pairing and not as... game pairings and then there's a couple of femme slash pairings for her like Sophia Vivian, Sophia Morgana Sophia Freya surprisingly although I mean I have written Sophia Freya so I shouldn't be that surprised by it and Sophia Will and I wonder what my good boy Will has done to deserve Sophia as as a girlfriend and finally, we have Nimue, which also comes on AO3 as Nimue, parenthesis Merlin. And there are 531 works tagged with her. And again, who wants to take a guess as to what the most popular pairing is? Nimue Merlin? No! Nimue Morgana? They are in the top five, but also not the most popular one. Nimue Gaius. <laughs> now you're just now you're just making shit up. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, no, the most popular pairing is Nimoy Igraine with oh. forty works. Yeah. All right. So let's have some wrecks. Um. So I I didn't really have much in the way of wrecks for Mary Collins. Uh, yeah, that's that's fair. Neither do I. Yeah, I mean, I've seen her shown up as, like, a very, very, very minor character in a few fics, but, I mean, not to an extent where I would even, you know, be willing to recommend one. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. Um, For Sophia, uh, like, I, I didn't, I've never really read any fics that focus on her, but I did have a few wrecks for people who might like different aspects of her. Yeah, go uh, ahead then. So I really like um, the Falconry series by Versafile. And okay. I think if people really enjoyed, like, the she, 
and like sort of the the high fantasy aspect of like whatever is going on with the she and the lake of avalon and all of that with sophia i think they would really enjoy the falconry series because like it has a whole section of the story where like they go to avalon and they go to like the sealy court and the unsealy court and all of that i just heard the word falconry and i started screaming internally (laughs) (laughs) i was just so happy to hear that word from someone other than me um if you do like the idea of like sophia being in a relationship with arthur i i really enjoyed in your name by bohemia uh, and that's one where they're actually like engaged to be married. Um, I mean, obviously it's like Merther's endgame, but uh, she does show up there, you know, as um, Arthur's fiance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another fic where I I enjoyed their interpretation of Sophia is "Hard in a Headlock" by Sweet and Sharp, um, which is Omega Verse. It's probably my favorite Omega verse fic that I've ever read. But in it, um, Sophia is just very, very catty. And um, she is like Merlin's rival for Arthur, at least in her own point of view. She's like trying to win Arthur's love. And she considers herself to be a very good match for Arthur. And so she goes for Merlin because she thinks that Merlin is trying to like um, get Arthur to fall in love with him instead. This reminds me a lot of Coffee Shop Muffins. Have you ever read Coffee Shop Muffins by Skeller? I haven't yet, despite the number of times that you guys have recommended it. Oh, you really, you really sure? Because it's, first of all, it's basically a fandom classic at this point. And second of all, it's hilarious. And there are like at least three different Podfic versions that are still available online that you can listen to. Yeah, I was going to... Like not wreck, but I was gonna mention uh coffee shop muffins that like she's just there as like a normal person who isn't really a villain. Like she's just yeah. she's kind of the victim of their epic love, you know? Like they're yeah. not it's not or really even just fault. or even just epic bromance because coffee shop yeah, muffins yeah, has yeah. two epic uh, two yeah. endings. There's a bromance version and a romance version. Yeah. And yeah, it's you can read it either way, which yeah. is which is great. Yes. Um and I mean, I don't think it's even like worth it recommending this one, but I do really enjoy the portrayal of Sophia in The Student Prince by Faye J. I was going to mention that too. Again, another bit so where she appears. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I just like that they had her um, in there as like, someone who's sort of like bound up in their story and might like keep reappearing um and that she kind of gives more of the backstory of like what's happening with their reincarnation and everything yeah yeah also i really like that there is additional lore in it where she likes like she's gwen's roommate and she likes gwen because gwen is the daughter of uh, someone of like her dad makes jewelry i think tom Mm -hmm. in this in this verse and so sophia is like she likes gwen because she has like a tradition of craftsmanship so i i really liked i really like that aspect of it and then last of all for nimue um i really want to recommend loaded march because i think 
considering we discussed how much Nimue did not get the screen time she deserved in the show, I think that in this one, um, you know, she ends up being like the big bad of the entire story. And she definitely does get given her due as far as, you know, getting to really let loose as a villain. Um, so I think if you really enjoy the idea of Nimue as a villain and being the the big bad, uh, Loaded March is a very good one for that. Um, and if you don't know much about that fic, it's like a military AU where Merlin and Arthur are in the British Special Forces. Arthur is the captain of the squad and Merlin gets added onto their squad as um, their communications officer. And, you know, everybody else on the squad is like the Knights of Camelot and they end up having to fight in this like giant magical apocalypse together. Uh, then, yeah, it's, it's really, really good. Um, the other, the fic that I mentioned earlier that I wanted to recommend is The Warlock's Quickening by Antares 8. And that's the one where, um, they reimagined, uh, this, the entire series because it's an ongoing fic, but they're reimagining it as like Merlin being more proactive. So for example, I think like in the second chapter, he releases the dragon um, and then just like everything plays out with like these different choices by Merlin. But that's the one where Nimue is actually behind like everything that's happening in season one. And I thought it was a really good take on kind of reimagining what actually happens in the series, but in a way that maybe makes it a little bit more sense plot wise. Um, and then the last one I, I wanted to recommend for Nimue is one where she gets um i don't know if it's not exactly that it's like a redemption story for her but maybe she is a little bit more sympathetic um but it's a binding contract by ld um and it's one where she is also a victim of um of society and so she tries to take her revenge based on that cool nice that all sounds good. Um, so I only have two uh, Nimue wrecks that are fan vids. I couldn't find any for the others, I'm afraid. The first one is called The Price of Magic, and it's just a kind of Nimue character study. It's really, really good. It's uh, set to, uh, I can't remember what the song is, but it's set to some like really like like good fast-paced music, and it's basically all of kind of her moments in season one and the deal that she struck with Uther and all that kind of stuff. It's a really good watch. And then the second one was made for the Swords and Sorcery competition six years ago, which seems a really long time. And I feel it's a really long time because I took part in that competition <laughs> and it was very, did not feel like six years ago. I can tell you that. Um, and it was for the AU round and um, it involves Morgana and it's called World Collapsing, and it basically is like a bit of a switcheroo where Morgana is Emerus, and so it just basically is like an AU in which Nimue has to uh, stop Morgana rather than having to stop Merlin, and it's also worth a watch, so check it out. And then the only fic I can actually think of off the top of my head that I've read in which Nimue appears like by name that I can remember is the um, the Pendragon Guide uh, to How Not to Date. <laughs> and it's when they go out for this pub quiz and um, 
Morgana's trying to convince Arthur to go to the pub to be on a team with them because Nimue is going to be on a team and Morgana doesn't like Nimue because she's just always moody. <laughs> and Arthur is like, yeah, sure, I'll go. And the reason why he's so easy to convince is because he's already kind of got a crush on the on the bartender who is a mysterious, dark-haired young man. Um, and uh, yeah, but she's in that scene and that's the only fic I can think of that I've actually read that she's in. Uh, unfortunately uh so yeah those are those are my recs awesome thank you i have two recs also for nimoe because i mean all the sophia works that have been mentioned like um what did we say coffee shop muffins and student prints i second those recs also a tiny self rec for sophia i gave her a different twist in my uh, Big Bang Road of Ruins. If anyone wants to read that, it's a Mad Max Fury Road fusion with Merlin and Sophia is one of the wives in that one. And my Nimoe regs are the first one is called Fresh Poison Each Week. It's a relatively short fic by Lady Ragnall. It was part fic by Kalakiria. And it's set in pre-canon when Igraine is already pregnant and Nimoy and Igraine are friends and Nimoy has a vision or rather no not a vision but she like Groundhog Day like she relives the day that Igraine gives birth to Arthur and then dies. And every time she tries to change something so that Igraine won't die and Uther won't go on a rampage to kill every sorcerer ever. And in the end, she figures out what she has to do and thus canon is basically changed from this. And it's all from Nimue's point of view. And it's very intense. And then I found a really nice edit on Tumblr of the High Priestesses of the Old Religion and it's Nimue, Morgana and Mogos and these edits are just very very pretty and I will link to them in the show notes so that you can all go and look at them as well. If no one else has any any more recs or anything else to add for this episode I think we might be at the end. I think so. Yeah. I think so. So, as per usual, I would like you all to know that our theme music was composed by Sidesteppings. Any additional music will be from freesound.org. The man of our cover is by Brolin's Keep, and the actual cover was made by me. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on to talk to us about the female villains of season one. And obviously, we say this to everyone come back anytime. Yes. Please do. It's been great yes. having you. Thank Especially you so much since you're a listener. You're like an avid <laughs> listener, so it's so exciting to have you here. Yeah, I'm, I was really glad. No, I've been listening to you guys since back in uh, December. All right. I am Momotastic on AO3, where you can find my fix, and Momopods also on AO3, where you can find my pod fix. And I'm Miss Snowfox, wherever Snowfoxes are sold at my name, Miss Snowfox, <laughs> which is pretty much everywhere on the internet 
sometimes with an extra X, sometimes not. Special surprise for those that choose to look. Sarah, would you like to remind us of where we can find you? Yes, I am at Smartinis on Twitter. I am transdimensional-void on Tumblr and transdimensional-void on AO3. Amazing. Thank you very much, yes. Next time, in just two weeks, we will be talking about the incomparable Katie McGrath and we will hopefully talk to all of you again. Until then, I've been Momotastic. And I'm Miss Snowbox. And our guest was Sarah. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.